0: So as a simple example, we run all the time for people, take your 60-40 model, take the amount of capital allocated to the 40 in fixed income, split that 50-50 between long vol and more equity. So you're now 80-20, 80 equities, 20 long vol. And that looks better than 60-40, less risk, more return. And then because of the capital efficiency of the way people run long vol strategies. Everybody's able to run that at 2x leverage through a 2x leverage sleeve of some form, or run it off balance sheet with full leverage the way Mark Spitznagel does. Um, so two times lever that, now you're 80-40 and you make more return and have less risk.
1: For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from all around the world. In this series, I've invited one of them, who also happens to be a longtime friend, namely Harry Chrislin, to host a series of in-depth conversation on the topics of volatility, risk, and portfolio protection. In today's world, portfolio construction is fast moving to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolio. With ever increasing uncertainty around the globe, knowing if you are essentially long or short volatility in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin and survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized market participants and the processes they follow to harness their returns so that we can all become better informed investors. And with that, please welcome Harry Krishnan. Thanks very much, Niels, for the introduction. My guest
2: today is Dave Dredge, who is the Chief Investment Officer of Convex Strategies in Singapore. I'm really keen to interview you today, Dave, because I think your interests intersect pretty closely with mine. Um, I'm into complex systems. I'm interested and a practitioner in long volatility strategies. And I'm also keenly interested in global macro. And I suspect you're interested in all three. And so I'm delighted to have you on and we can take it from there. Maybe we can start, though, with a bit of your background, uh, namely how you came to be in Singapore and how you came to be one of a fairly rare breed of practitioners in the long vol space. Harry, thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here.
0: Uh, that's, uh, I'm a lucky guy in that I, I do sort of what I was brought up to do. Uh, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and consider myself a Utah boy through and through. But I went off to grad school at the University of California in Berkeley and studied economics and financial mathematics and derivatives under Janet Yellen on the economic side and a guy named Mark Rubenstein on the financial derivative side and graduated in 19, spring of 1987 at the height of Mark Rubenstein's portfolio insurance business. So that was the class I was there studying way, way, way back then. I, uh, I joined bank of America, which was all run out of San Francisco back then because I didn't want to move all the way to New York and get so far away from home in Utah. And, uh, three months later on the first Monday of October, 1987 bank of America sent me to Singapore and, uh, I got my first taste of the misunderstanding, if you will, of risk by a large financial institution and the people that I was working for and supposedly learning from when uh, October 87's crash came and my former professor uh, ran into one of the problems that I always wondered about in class. Uh, Isn't uh, continuity an issue in this strategy? And uh, obviously what you guys call Black Monday over there was far blacker Tuesday out here where markets like Australia and uh, Hong Kong were down 50% in a day and you know, the requisite moves in front end interest rates and currencies, et cetera. And the, the the losses in trading books were massively outsized relative to the traditional risk limits that had been applied to them.
2: So it was sort of my beginning in thinking, maybe risk isn't what these guys think it is. Yeah, I mean, wasn't it thought back in the days, back in the day, that uh, at least by academics, that options were almost redundant because you could just replicate them with a mixture of a bond and the underlying asset. Yeah, the, the, the assumptions in the early days of uh, the binomial model and early
0: days of Black Shoals. Interesting, in case you're curious, the the final exam in uh, Rubinstein's class was just the mathematical, and you had no idea when you walked in. Because all you did every day in class was he explained how to value, value anything—a car, a house, a job—using a binomial option model. That's all you did in class, and then the final exam was the mathematical proof that the binomial model and, and Black Scholes were the same thing. That was it. Either you got it or you didn't get it. But then you know the concept that there was no, as we would call it now, volatility smile, and that you could replicate it through an assumption of continuity. In, in replicating the, the deltas up and down was, you know, the fundamental flaw in his portfolio insurance model, where the,
2: the vol of vol overwhelmed what they were trying to do at the time. Just as a, a historical note, uh, or question, uh, what did the smile look like pre-portfolio insurance crisis? Was there no <laughs> smile or was it, was it just a kinky uh, thing?
0: You know, there, there was, in a sense, there were, there was no smile, right? People... I mean, I, I, you know, eventually in my career of doing stuff and building derivative business, I ended up in Tokyo in, in the very, very early '90s, 1990, building their yen interest rate derivative business and uh, swaptions and caps and floors and stuff. And uh, one of my best buddies to this day was the FX options trader there, and they traded, you know, dollar yen FX options with no smile no, no skew, no risk reversal, no nothing. And you just priced up in the wings and marked it. You know, the clients bought the wings as hedges and you marked it as profit. And then you traded the gamma in the middle. You bought the, at the monies and traded the gamma. And that was the way it was until things moved big. And then you realized, geez, something was wrong. So they just, there was just all these simplistic assumptions and the modeling was very simplistic. And, and you know, in a sense, and I don't want to be mean, it still is, right? You're you still, you know, still, uh, you know the, the market is still using Black-Scholes as the most simple example and value at risk is probably the most treacherous example. You know, still using assumptions around continuity and uh, Brownian and Gaussian distributions that are knowably wrong. Ben, Benoit Madelbrot told us they were wrong uh, 50 years ago now, and, and it's accepted that they're wrong. But- but the solution is to stick with the simplistic
2: answer to a hard problem. That's well, interesting because I, I always come on sort of thinking I'm not going to talk about Bitcoin and I always <laughs> wind up talking about Bitcoin. And uh, someone asked me to look at a snapshot of the, the Bitcoin skew and it looked very high, which is hardly surprising, but also very flat. There was no real variation across strike or, t- or uh, maturity. Uh, do you have any take on that as to what it implies? Or I'm, you know, I'm loosely familiar and have some friends that are quite active in that
0: universe. But business-wise, as you might guess, I'm a reasonably busy guy given what we do. Nobody's trying to sell me Bitcoin vault, and so I'm not looking at it. There's nothing. There's n- nothing in the way we look at the world that says Bitcoin volatility is a good value investment right now. And put most simply. Uh, the guys that I do business with must not be over- overburdened
2: with supply of it because they're not trying to sell it to me. Well, fair enough. That kind of brings us to a more more important point, which is, if I'm not mistaken, you characterize yourself as a value buyer of volatility. Now, for the general audience, what does that mean?
0: Yeah, we don't think of ourselves as, as traders, right? We're not trading, we're not arbitraging, we're not timing or, you know, My analogy that I'm I'm sure you've heard before is you know, we're we're the goalkeeper, we're only playing defense, we're long vault or tail risk, if you want to call us that. We're only playing defense, and we do that by constructing, maintaining, and growing structurally long investments in volatility. And so, we buy volatility in whatever form it comes in that's efficient for us to own. So, obviously, a big chunk of that is options, Uh, a lot of that is variant swaps, uh, it's volatility swaps, it's FEAs, it's credit default options, it's options on credit default options, it's equity options, currency options, interest rates options, it's swaptions, it's uh, caps and floors, it's whatever format the volatility comes in to the extent that we determine it value, you know, the, the trick, and I'm sure you're, you, know, you deal with this all the time, the difference, there's a big difference between low and
2: cheap. Yeah, absolutely. Low and persistently low versus cheap potentially with a catalyst. Um, So you warehouse all these positions and they could be quite varied based on the supply that's available or the attractively priced supply that's available. Do you have any notion as to how to mix the various things you've warehoused or 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 does that not matter? It doesn't, in in a sense, it
0: doesn't matter. Uh, we, We buy what's most attractive when it's available and and so supply and demand dynamics fluctuate all the time throughout time and and the things that are the drivers of the supply uh, come and go the challenge in our business is a, is a long only guy is a always playing goalkeeper guy and obviously the, everything's the inverse of a return seeking strategy and a return seeking strategy in essence, time is your friend. Theta is your friend. You're accruing the earnings that you're a recipient of because you've foregone liquidity. In our world, we're a store of liquidity that we're paying a fee for. So time is your enemy. You're constantly fighting the loss sensitivity through time. If you buy an option today, tomorrow, it's less sensitive. and And so you're constantly battling it. So we're always trying to extend the duration of the book and always trying to extend the sensitivity of the book. We're trying to provide the most vigorous goalkeeping so that our partners, our clients can go out and take more risk. They can put more goal scorers on the pitch and optimize the upside returns of opportunities in the system with more efficient risk mitigation on the downside. So we move back and forth between asset classes and and opportunities based upon the supply dynamic. And when the supply is good in a given something that that we're active in, we can build the, the sort of depth, breadth, layers of convexity and duration of that. And then it goes away or, or
2: pops or whatever, and something else comes along. And well, so the I, book, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I strongly agree with this. I think this is a key, a crucial philosophical point, which is. The world of long vol is not the world of optimization, of precise sizing of positions, of figuring out exactly what you get a hold of, measuring correlations and all that jazz. It's more building something robust that um, if there is a liquidity event, should do well.
0: Yeah, in a sense, now while we run some specific mandates for some people that are maybe a little more focused around a, a geography or an asset class or a particular... In general, what we're doing is we're protecting from correlation, right? We're protecting from the correlated shock that is the major capital drawdown risk to any diversified asset portfolio anywhere in the world across any grouping of asset classes. And and in that shock, like you say, it's just the persistence of having a maximized asymmetry convexity available in the system. And sort of by definition, and I've read, uh, basically read your whole book, which is fantastic. And you know, it's the what I refer to, and you talk about market trimmers and stuff in your book. What I refer to as uncapitalized tails. Where is there risk such that a move outside of the probabilistic expectations of the flawed Gaussian world triggers a conditional distribution? A, a power law, fat tail distribution. And those risks are essentially uncapitalized tails. It's where, predominantly in the world that I live in and that you live in, where some participant is taking risks, quite regularly a fiduciary. You talk about the biggest whales as the banking system. So there's a perfect example where you've got a bunch of fiduciary institutions that are running 30 times levered balance sheets, taking risks using a probabilistic methodology around the expected outcome with virtually no uh, risk heuristic around the potential payout functions of the risks they're taking. And so when those trigger, when super senior tranches of subprime CDOs all get downgraded from triple A's to non-investment grade, it wipes out 100% of the capital in the banking system. And that's a massive conditional trigger outside of their value at risk, normal distribution world. So that's... What we're out looking for, and in a sense, it doesn't matter where you own it or what asset class or what geography. When the contagion comes, I always and I don't know. Do you know Jerry at thirty six South? Jerry Hayworth, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's so friend Jerry of mine. and I, Jerry and I are great mates, and you know, which Jerry and I always say, yeah, you know, that we always use the forest fire analogy, you know, the self-organized criticality of forest. In that, in that lightning strike, only one tree catches fire from the lightning strike. All the other trees catch fire from the contagion risk, correlation risk of the tree next to them. It's the correlation, it's the contagion that's the problem. Yeah, How that's a the good fire one. starts It's totally I might unpredictable. Steal it. Yeah. Wait, <laughs> you can if you see Jerry, tell him he stole it from me. Did he? Yeah. Well.
2: <laughs> yeah. in any case, I mean this is this is pretty interesting to me too, because we've sort of vectored into the area of of um how you source good ideas. And um, maybe you can say a little bit about that and how your position may, perhaps in Singapore, at least historically, has given you an edge in that direction.
0: Uh, yeah. So again, like I said, I, I, I do what I grew up to do. Uh, eventually, in, in 1991, I left Bank of America and on this premise of what we then called a, a core risk business, I had figured out, I I ended up being a guy at Bank of America that went around and set up all of the trading activities in their local branches around Asia in the late 80s when Indonesia and Thailand and Philippines and Taiwan and Korea were all opening up the markets, the deregulation period in the late 80s. And it dawned on me then again that particularly in these countries with pegged currencies, limited access, active central bank, you know, the central bank as the agent, the
2: Oh, I, c- I can't remember the domi-
0: do- dominant agent. The dominant book, agent. Dominant That's the agent. One. Thank right. You. Yeah. Using in those environments, using historical volatility and correlation as a predictor for future risk, pretty downright stupid. And and so I came up with this. Geez, risk is different in these markets. What I would we called emerging markets, but effectively I defined as markets where the market didn't determine the equilibrium price of risk because of some intervention. Most obvious being, pegged currencies, fixed currencies. And that meant that historical correlations were meaningless to what the world would look like in the future. And so, anyway, I pitched this concept of a emerging markets business where you needed to have this core of positive convexity. My goalkeeper in our investment, as a as a offset to and a liquidity generator for your otherwise convexity foregoing or liquidity foregoing franchise businesses, market making and derivative structuring and underwriting
2: and all the stuff that you earn fee income for foregoing liquidity. And so... Okay, let me continue that football analogy then, yeah. a soccer analogy, sorry. Uh, so what's the role of fixed income in this in this uh, <laughs> soup, in this well, mix?
0: Yeah, so let me come back to that a Goal little bit. Goal or it's attack? A, no, fixed income is what I would call a defensive midfielder, right? So if you think about your, call your beta or your you know, your guys that are really Goal scorers, right? Your strikers. And then your diversifiers or what most people think of as defensive strategies, are your defensive midfielders, right? You've hired these guys to play defense, right? Of course, the mistake is you've probably incentivized them or evaluated them based on goal scoring. Right? So you go out and hire a, an absolute return hedge fund because you want diversification from your beta risk, you want him to be a defensive midfielder but then you pay him to score goals. And then you get surprised every time that he ends up highly correlated to the beta markets that he was supposed to be defending from. But that's just another story.
2: Well, continuing on that analogy, I might beat it to death, but what's levered fixed income then? So let's think of risk parity. Who's that on the field? Well, again, if you think of, uh, it's it's a derivative
0: of a defensive midfielder. So it's taken the defensive midfielder And levered them to enhance what limited goal scoring they do in hopes that they also, because you've levered it, you get better defense out of them as long as the correlation holds. But uh, the problem with fixed income, the problem with all of those defensive strategies, and this comes back to why we do what we do, right? What we're trying to do is solve the problem of compounding capital for the end capital owner. Right? We're not trying to solve the problem of a short-term return incentive structure for us as a manager. We're trying to solve exactly. their problem, which is compounding. And in a compounding world, it's, and again, I say this all the time, it's just math. What matters in the compounding, the non ergodic path of compounding, is your performance in the big numbers. And imp- most importantly, the big down numbers because of the greater impact of the negative compound than the positive compound. And if you are investing in strategies that are bounded topside, so levered carry, but participating downside, you're doing the exact opposite of what drives compounding, where you want to participate on the upside and protect the downside. And so they're all compounding destroyers, and they're all fundamentally based on the flawed uh, statistical mathematics of Gaussian distributions and normal distributions and random walks. They work really well at the mean. They don't work well outside of the normal distribution. And it's outside of the normal distribution where compounding is driven. We run a, a simple picture all the time. Take out, you know, take the entire uh, 80, 40-year, 500-month time series of S&P returns and chop off the 10 worst months. And what happens to the compounding? Well, if you So I, you know, I probably have my spreadsheet right here. In front of me, if you look at the, the terminal capital, so starting at 100 bucks of S&P uh, over 500 months, the S&P, and I'm not using that total return, this is just S&P, the terminal capital of 100 goes to 4,000. If you chop off the 10 worst months, so just two percentile worst months, it goes to 15,500. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, there's some subtleties in this too, though, because uh, you know some people own fixed income outright. I would say that refers to the majority of real money accounts out there. But others roll the futures, let's say. And if you roll the futures, you're not just benefiting from yield; you're benefiting from roll down. Yeah, there so we. there are other sources of return within the space, but I don't think they are the ones that big institutions are thinking about.
0: Yeah, that you know again. I, any, anybody, so 60, 40, take your basic 60, 40 balance portfolio, right? As a, the, the 40, the, let's say the 40 is the allocation of fixed income. That is explicitly considered to be foregoing the greater expected returns of the equity for the portfolio benefit and hopefully some carry of the fixed income. So in that world, you know, it's the basic Kelly criterion solution to the gambling game, right? You've reduced your exposure to the game to protect against the absorbing barrier of bankruptcy. So in risk management space, the solution in that scenario is reducing risk, right? In risk mitigation space, this is something that Mark Spitznagel or Nassim Taleb would say all the time, good risk mitigation means you can take more risk. So, you know, can I always use the, and I know Mark uses it well, as well. The Formula One race car example, right? In a a multi-circuit race, what's the most important thing to the guy who wins 40 circuits of the race? The brakes. The most important thing is the brakes, right? Because the brakes are what allow him to accelerate and decelerate. And that's convexity, right? In the sense of returns. The acceleration during the fastest part is the acceleration, convexity, positive convexity in the upside. And the deceleration in the most dangerous parts is the thing that keeps you safe and allows you to go faster. Now, the solution for the 60, 40 or the traditional premise of de-risking, or I'm going to cash or whatever, is just driving slower, right? That's just limiting the upside capacity of the engine to 60%. And yeah. that's a very easy and safe way to drive around the track. It's not the way to win the race. It's not the way to drive terminal compounding. And if you measure, you know, and as tends to be the case in our industry, if you measure at the end of 40 laps of the circuit, if the way you go and talk about your performance is your average speed per lap, average annual returns, the guy who's just driving slowly doesn't look so bad. If you measure terminal capital standing at the end of the race, the guy with the best brakes, uh,
2: won by several laps,
0: right? My example of
2: cutting the bottom 10 months off, right? Yeah, I mean it's a, that's a fantastic point because the difference between average and compounded returns is very significant, and there's a good reason in principle for looking at average returns when you're doing when you're building quantitative models because you don't want to be bogged down with leverage considerations. But so many people just stop there, and they never think in terms of compounding, and that's crucial uh, for a real portfolio. It's not it's not important when you're sitting in the lab trying to figure out what may work or may not work, but it's hugely significant in the end game.
0: Yeah, as I
2: always say, and you, if you've read the stuff I write,
0: I'm always poking Good stuff. at it, right? Yeah. If, uh, you know, if you're focused on annual average returns,
1: you're, you're focusing
0: on the, the objectives of the manager. If you're focused on compounded returns, you're focused on the objective of the capital owner. It's
2: that simple. Yeah, I mean, I, I've gotten into machine learning a bit. I'm by no means an expert, but people like to talk about Windsorizing the data, which means you throw out the extreme values and then you do some machine learning. Yeah. Okay, that's fine if you have an image of Mars and you're trying to clean it up. It doesn't work so well in this world. So um, yeah, it's one of those things. Yeah, we
0: talk a lot about, again, it's, a, it's another uh, Mandelbrot thing, that, that dimensions are subjective probably the big dimension in this conversation and in a sense in our space and what people do that the, the main dimension that is subjective is time and so if you if if you're gonna measure the performance of that 40 lap race by lap you're gonna optimize to a very different solution than if you're going to start at the terminus and optimize backwards after from 40 laps and so if you think about that, If you take a short enough time period and try to optimize to a probabilistic expected return outcome, well, the shorter that time period becomes, the more likely the optimized solution is selling the straddle.
2: Yeah. absolutely.
0: If you take a long enough time horizon with all of the outliers, outliers and the power loss scales of those, the other dimension that's relevant, scalability, well, then buying the straddle is always going to be the right answer because that's what's going to drive the compounding over time
2: yeah it's, it's really that, that simple well, i'd love to talk a bit more about Mandelbross as well um one of the best things about him was that he was outside the academy for many many years so i think if he'd been at a university pure speculation on my part he wouldn't have come up with such radical reinterpretations of financial time series and the nature of market fluctuations as he did and so um We're kind of, I'm very grateful for that. And there are numerous such stories. And that's one of the things I think that I really like about talking to hedge hedge fund guys, which is they're not too stuck in orthodoxy in terms of what the ivory tower is thinking, but they go out and figure it out for themselves using the markets as a guide instead of being driven by theory. And uh, a lot of this stuff we talk about may seem a bit flimsy to a lot of people, say, in school and so on. But these are really solid conceptual ideas, in my opinion, that I've I've grown to love. So I'll leave it at that. Um, You've also mentioned another guy, um, Per Bach, in some of your research and the old sandpile theory. And uh, I saw a very nice interpretation, um, although sad, of the Taliban's uh, emergence in Afghanistan using this theory. And I'd like, uh, I know I'm jumping around a bit as a rookie interviewer, but maybe you could say something about that.
0: Yeah, I, I wrote a piece, I think it was our, our August monthly update that are up on our website at convex-strategies.com if anybody wants to go and look at them. And I had seen, as you know, you could have seen anywhere, I happened to see it on a BBC story, the Afghanistan maps and the changing colors as uh, Afghan government control and disputed control and Taliban control... Uh, provinces in Afghanistan, which had been sort of steady for a long time, and then started to flash a little bit, and then over that last weekend, 100% turned red. It went from a few red ones and some different color ones, and then instantaneously, it was such a perfect—you know—it's it, exactly the visual of Pearbox Box Sandpile model, where you're dropping one grain of sand at a time, and eventually it hits the critical state. And then the, the network of avalanches clears it, and the the board changes all all changes color, and so it just you know, struck me that the visual was so good of that that I stuck those pictures of those maps in my thing, and then made the analogy of of the you know the U.S. government military, uh, sus- artificial sustaining of the Afghanistan sandpile uh, until they decided not to anymore, and then you know literally two days. The Taliban took over the whole thing and then use that as analogy to the imbalances in uh, economies that are sustained through uh, never-ending monetary policy excesses to try to prop up that sand pile, all the while knowing that should they ever choose to stop, then you likely have
2: whatever the next end-of-cycle connectivity of avalanches are. So basically, the more they ease the more unstable potentially the system becomes in the future yes what would sway this would it be a change in political view would it it could be any number of things but do you have any
0: particular well, pet
2: theory in the in the
0: you know in the sand pile theory you know what 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 causes the avalanche the, the last grain of sand mm. so uh, you know as you noted in your in your section about volmageddon you know in a sense it was no event it just was a self-creating, self-organized criticality that could no longer sustain. And once it started to move, it itself generated the momentum to unwind that risk in the system. So it doesn't really need to be anything. Now, in the case of Afghanistan, in the analogy I made in my write-up, you know, why would the U.S. government and the U.S. military, the world's strongest military, supposedly, allow the Taliban to take over all of Afghanistan? Well, I surmise because they decided to. They decided they didn't want the ongoing, indefinite, never-ending intervention to prop up the sandpile and And the U.S. military presence, they were 10 years of troop surges, and then 10 years after they decided to get out till they actually did it. Well, likewise with QE. I mean, QE is the same sort of thing, where if it works, you do more, and if it doesn't work, you do more. And yeah. once you're, once you're at zero and you're doing QE, you find out that you have to do it forever. And so I assume, and I say this to people all the time, well, why would they ever let rates go up? I said, well, because they decided to, I, you know, just like the U S military, I'm sure could have held back the Taliban as long as they chose to. But in the meanwhile, there's enormous costs and, and burdens and, and Uh, second-order effects and negative externalities to a forever presence in Afghanistan. Well, there's enormous costs and burdens and uh, negative externalities to a forever zero interest rate, negative interest rate, quantitative easing by every fixed income asset in the world every time the sand pile starts to destabilize. And at some point, saying I know when or why, my guess is at some point they'll decide they don't want to. Maybe it's because their measure of price stability gets out of hand. They decide that that's more critical than sustaining the the solvency risk that they're propping up in the sandpile. Uh, I don't know. The good news is, from an investment perspective, it doesn't matter, right? An investment perspective, you just need to structure your
2: portfolio to participate and protect. Yeah. Well, this idea of a fixed income substitute type idea, uh, it's pretty powerful. And um, one thing I've thought, and maybe it's a silly thought, but is that Japan has often been thought us being a little bit less financially um, forward-looking than, say, the U.S., but far from the case in some ways, because having been in a zero-interest rate world for three decades in Japan, a lot of these fixed-income-type substitutes, a lot of these carry strategies that, at least on paper, look good because they generate yield, even if they take left-tail risk have come into vogue. And that must be true increasingly in the US and Europe as well, especially especially Europe. And that sort of points back to what you do, which would suggest to me that if banks are not as active as they used to be, if they prefer acting as agents. And if there's a huge demand for carry in the investment community, there should be more opportunities globally for you now than there used to be. Um,
0: I don't know if there's more. but. Uh... It's ever present, right? There's always been, as I said, in my business, what we started up at Bankers Trust way back when, in order to create the convexity that we wanted to run a emerging market franchise business, we needed to construct optionality in markets where optionality didn't exist. So we came up with this clever idea of embedding short option structures in yield-enhanced investment products in a pegged currency, high growth, high savings, high inflation world who's all tied their currency to the US dollar, which had much lower interest rates. And so there was this financial repression that had existed out here really since the Japan bubble burst and this appetite for yield because you had negative real interest rates everywhere. And so the appetite to enhance yield and the willingness to embed that in short volatility was how we created the original structured product activity out here in EM and struck the convexi- and stripped the convexity and- optionality out of those things and in a sense that's what I still do just that that structured product business became an absolute behemoth as it became the core business and trying to monetize now financial repression everywhere in the world and so these embedded short volatility structures get created you know 24 hours a day nonstop, every asset class every market every conceivable you know anybody who thinks that these are just oh dumb retail clients are kidding themselves Every Taiwan insurance company, Korean pension fund, Japanese bank, sovereign wealth fund—you uh, know—everybody's in the game. And, and of course, out here, you know, down to you know, pretty much the entire retail deposit base in a place like Singapore is dual currency deposits. I mean, there's more deposits mm. with a short FX option than there are in the domestic currency, and, and that creates a just endless flow of vol supply. And, and where that imbalances relative to demand, which is very common, right? Because if you think that the, the flaw, again, comes through the regulated financial intermediary system where the participants are, in essence, I'll simplify, but you'll get it. It's not that simplified. They're allowed to account for the enhanced yield in the form of repackaged option premium as income, and they don't have to capitalize the tail risk involved. Meanwhile, the guy on the other side, the buyer of the option, the buyer of the optionality when it recirculates out into the market, me, my investors, right? we have to account for the, the investment in premium as cost, but don't get to account for the capital protection of the asymmetry that we own. And so that creates in a world of short-term uh, return focus, a supply and demand dynamic where fiduciaries can say, well, this is income and I don't have any risk. And principals say, well, this is a cost, but I don't get any protect- risk recognition for the risk protection. And so you get these massive imbalances in supply and demand. And I can tell you, you know, a thousand stories over the last 30 years of you know how those imbalances build up and why they were where they were, and and then what happened in in either an idiosyncratic shock specific to it or in more specifically the correlated
2: shock where those uncapitalized risks get exposed. Yeah. So basically these institutions have a short-term regulatory edge, and you have a long-term edge based on their over eagerness to get into these products.
0: Well, we, we have very different uh, temporal horizons. Yeah. And, and we're solving for different, different things. So you think at a, a bank, or even at many investment manager firms, their P&L starts over at the beginning of every month. They're not the least bit conceptual of compounding. They, you know, uh, in, in fact, I know you know lots of guys who are probably in... Uh, high-frequency, systematic, algorithmic, intraday trading of VIX. Yeah. I mean, they literally start over every day. I, you know, I'm in a literally an indefinite time horizon challenge. I'm, none of my investors want their insurance to decay away in some sort of artificial calendar
2: year period. They want their insurance to be perpetual. Yeah, and by its very nature, short-term or intraday trading is short the tails. Because you have a constraint where you have to get out before the end of the day, so it's implicitly short to tails in some sense. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, you know, so we we were on the some of my friends in the in the industry when I run into them that are maybe more focused on markets in London or New York, always are curious what I'm doing, and I tell them they're like, "Wow, how do you find that stuff?" And I, I say, "I sit in Asia, and I put a sign on my door that says I
2: buy vault. And I sit <laughs> back and wait." How do you how do you price the I'm oh, sorry to interrupt. How do you price the implied vol in a some complex structure that someone someone shows you? Do you I,
0: I I decide where I'm willing to buy it. So the other good thing about what we do, because I'm not trading, I'm not return chasing, uh, I don't have to do anything that's not on my terms. So people come to me saying I have this vol to sell. They probably want to sell it in some form. I may want it in another form. They may want to sell it at one price and I want it at another price. And if they're happy to sell something in the form and at the price that suits our view of value and our diversification and our layering strategy in our portfolio, we'll transact. And then if the supply keeps coming, it's likely that I'm able to keep increasing the the convexity and the duration and the asymmetry at of a lower those cost. things yeah yeah at, at ever improving efficiency in a sense I, I don't really we don't think so much of cost we certainly don't think of carry but we think of efficiency right w- what's my bang for the buck that i'm getting and what's its value in the portfolio in terms of how we uh, are layering our
2: monetization well that that brings me to monetiz- monetization when is enough enough You've got this portfolio of beautiful value names. There's a catalyst, but it, it may lead to even bigger moves in fall. Uh, do you use stop losses, which is virtually impossible for short dated stuff, but or do you have other other mechanisms for taking profits?
0: Well, without giving away too much of the soup, um, you know, we've deter when we enter an investment. Uh, we've predetermined a targeted realization of asymmetry that we'll be monetizing at so as a general rule everything kind of has a preset monetization and that's driven by the potential asymmetry so a you know a put spread will have a far uh, tighter monetization than a than a multi-year variant swap that'll have a much, much further out monetization because it carries asymmetry much further in a dislocation. Now the best, just like when I enter an investment, the way I, the best way to determine value, and we have a whole bunch of things we look at like anybody else, all sorts of metrics and scanners and screeners. Mm -hmm. But the best way to determine value is that every bank on the street's calling me, trying to sell it to me because they wouldn't be calling me first, right? I'm the guy who says i'll I'll give you 10 cents on the dollar if you want to get rid of it they're calling me because they've run out of everybody else and they've run out of everybody else because this supply has built and built and built and built likewise when markets move into those uncapitalized hills they also know who to call so the best way to time monetization in the extreme is when they want to buy them back so if you go back to 08 the best time to monetize was right after the banks all got recapitalized and unwound their books. Um, Of course, that meant you probably needed to have really good
1: uh, two-way
0: variation margin arrangements with them. Because prior to that, they wouldn't unwind it because they didn't have the money to pay you back. But once they got recapitalized in late October, early November,
2: they just called and said, tell us what price. That's the best time. Yeah, one concern that some investors have, I'm sure you can address this, is that, when these products are not listed, um, you're kind of at the mercy of the banks to price the products for you. Is that true or false? And to what extent does that uh, dampen your, your payouts uh, when there is an event?
0: Um, it's, it's true and false. <laughs> there, there's that for, listen, if, if, again, if we're trying to trade around stuff in semi-complex markets, uh, it, it can complicate things we're generally not trying to do that. Right? And again, we're not, we're not calling them and asking them to price something for us to invest in. They're calling us af- asking if we'll take something out of their hands. So in general, in, in instigation of an investment, it's a negotiation. Right? It's not a pricing items per se. They have it to go and we're willing to buy it. And we probably end up discussing around the, you know, the level of basis risk they're willing to take between the Bermudan swaptions that they've taken in and the vanilla swaptions that I want to buy or whether they want, you know, they're long in some structure on, on CMS steepeners in a digital format. They don't, really want to sell it in a vanilla format because, it, you know, but of course I want to buy it in the vanilla format because yeah. I want the tail and, and so that sort of stuff. And then Likewise, you know, if, if we're trying to monetize things in sort of intermediate noise, it can be a problem. If we're trying to monetize things in extreme noise, it's not a problem because again, they're calling me. They're calling and saying we need, you know, we, we're unwinding stuff or we've got clients that are unwinding stuff. You know, the general problem is when the banks are hedging these things, they've assumed, right, that the, the guy managing the market risk has been sold volatility, usually in a far more complicated form exotic structure, derivative structure embedded in a structured product but in essence he's been sold that volatility and he's gone out to the market and sold it so he thinks he's fine now again you know it's more complicated than that because there's all kinds of basis risk and vanna and volga and second order effects and these things but his assumption is that no matter what happens to the market he doesn't care because he's got the other side but the problem generally is the other side turns out to be a credit problem because they've mismeasured the potential credit exposure of that guy because of the non-linearity of the risk. Again, they've taken, you know, that guy's sold them uncapitalized tail risk. And when it gets outside there, uh, they don't have enough margin. When they make a margin call, the guy says, "Uh, I'm out. Now all of a sudden it's it's the bank's position. He needs to buy it back. And at that point, there's no market for it. And so that's when you get the call saying how much. So March, 2020, some of the things that we had that uh, that had particularly big moves, and obviously the things that have the, the most uh, sensitive uncapitalized tails tend to be the things that have the biggest move in a period like March 2020. Well, those are the things that the bank's calling us back, saying, "Hey, our traders asked to buy some of that stuff back." We we look at it. We're the easiest. We're the easiest client on the street, right? Because we'll look at anything, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and and we're and we're we're never. You know, we're never calling, asking a price before the employment numbers or the central bank meeting. That, that stuff's meaningless to us. They're calling us. We're not calling them. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. We're not very smart.
2: No, I, I, on
0: the contrary. <laughs> we, always, we always joke with our, our you know, key bank partners that you know, we don't have a view. So we're, we're not like one of these guys that thinks we know what's going to happen. Our, our only view, we're, you know, we're value investors. Can we figure out? what the supply and demand dynamic is that's creating this supply that's found its way to us. And, and what's the most efficient way to own it.
2: What's your view given that you're long convexity in, in all of your positions, what's your view on paying for that convexity? A lot of investors say, how are you financing, um, the long vol that you're warehousing in your book yeah
0: we're not well if if we are we're doing it by being long vol right so the way we think about it is we as as i've mentioned a few times we layer convexity so there may be opportunities and things that are higher probabilistic outcomes but lower convexity and we can recover those when they occur simple example a put spread or gamma or something that helps us recover cost and use that cost recovery to own more of the stuff in the tails. So again, our objective as opposed to making money over the year is to optimize or maximize the growth of our potential protection. So when we make money, assuming the opportunity is there, we're reinvesting it in more protection. So our objective for our clients is the additional risk they're taking. So think about it. They've gotten rid of things that don't compound in up markets and added more stuff that does is that our goalkeeping capacity is growing with the compounding and growth of their assets in those markets and so that's the way we're thinking about it i think offsetting goalkeeping by running up and trying to score goals every now and again is disingenuous and i don't think that allocators if they thought about it again if the allocator is trying to solve the compounding problem I don't think he should be paying his goalkeeper hedge fund fees to take correlated risk to offset the cost of goalkeeping. If Absolutely. The whole point is so that the allocator can take more efficient correlated risk that he's not paying hedge fund fees on. Right? We're trying to create a construct for investors where they get to keep all of the upside and we focus on cutting off their downside, the key for compounding, versus a levered carry strategy embedded in a hedge fund where the investors foregoing the performance fees and fees on the upside and getting 100 percent of the downside well that's guaranteed non-compounding through a long investment cycle
2: yeah i mean there's this perverse example you could give where someone's given a tail risk mandate and they just sit in t-bills and they have no negative carry and then an event hits and they say oops we missed it and uh, that's not what investors want but but there are subtler subtler things you can do. Uh, let me just throw out a random example. Uh, what if I bought a long dated option where the forward curve is rolling down in my favor, and so kind of the row where the interest rate sensitivity is offsetting my bleed? Is that something you would think of yeah, doing? Absolutely, absolutely. We do a ton of that stuff,
0: right? And so we're we're trying to again, optimize the efficiency. We're not trying to you know, carry, I don't think of carry as a relevant thing, right? Efficiency. So if I can create convexity more cost effectively without foregoing the convexity, so I would never, you know, buy an option and fund it by selling some other option. To me, that just makes no sense whatsoever. Would I buy an option that's efficient because I get positive roll dynamics of the various inputs to that option? So I'm sure you're familiar with it's a very common one things like CMS curve steepeners, where at points in the forward surface you can get positive roll on the delta and the correlation inputs into that pricing, and on vol surfaces, and so you can carry things that cost nothing that are explicit long options with explicit convexity in
2: them, and so those are the, those are the kind of things we're doing all the time. What's your view on stuff like um, the selling ratio spreads? So let's say I sold one. S&P 25 delta put and I bought four, five delta puts or five, five delta puts. That's a strategy that I used to talk about a lot. It's now expensive to run, but is, is that within your wheelhouse? Yeah, so that's, we would think of that as a, as a skew trade.
0: That's just explicitly trading skew. And skew is one of the more interesting things that gets impacted by a number of the structured product markets that we look at in equities, FX, equities, uh, interest rates, even credit in some cases, which, and so that's a, a very common strategy for us and something that we're very active in. It's something that, you know, I'm always, whenever one of our friends or uh, investors asks about, occasionally I get asked ideas, oh, what's a good hedge for this? I we sure. just want to throw something on. You know, I'll and they, say, well, listen, an option will cost you this, put it in the bottom drawer, go ahead. Don't ever try to do one of these things. Don't ever do a sell a put ratio or a call ratio or a payer ratio or whatever, because that requires active management, and most of those guys don't have the attention to actively manage the inconsistent vega and yeah. There's the valley of death near uh, near maturity. strikes, yeah, yeah. So you know we manage a ton of that stuff, and we but we have very specific rules about how we manage the uh, the
2: inconsistent decay of the strikes across the other Greeks. Doesn't low vol help you in more ways than just as a valuation bet? It helps you because out-of-the-money scenarios are closer in strike terms. Uh, The amount of leverage, potential leverage you have on the position is bigger, so you can make higher multiples than you would otherwise. And you're also getting a, uh, as I said, you're getting a value play on vol. So isn't low vol kind of a dream combination, at least if there's the hope of some catalyst in multiple dimensions. It's, 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 it's the key. And, and, and you know, right, running a, a, a long
0: vol, negative carry, uh, maintain sensitivity forever is, is, a, is a brutal job to do day in and day out, a <laughs> thankless job, you know, you know, in a world that pays for goal scoring, right? The one thing that makes the job manageable is that conveniently the cheapest insurance aligns with the biggest risk. So where the vol's the lowest and the cheapest because of the impact of supply imbalances over demand is exactly where the most
2: dangerous uncapitalized tails exist. We don't have to be too smart. Warren Buffett said something, I don't know if it was true, that uh, he wanted to make some money so he could pursue his hobby of reading. He liked to read. And um, there are numerous stories about him, but that was one of my goals in finance. And I think long vol is a good place to be a fairly thoughtful person because you don't have to be that hands on. You have time to think, but it takes a very specific personality type. And that is not the type of person you typically see, say on a flow desk. You'll see that it, it's a very unique mindset. And you mentioned Jerry Hayworth. I think he shares that um, mindset where he doesn't want to get too involved in the positions he puts on while he's I don't want to speak for him, but the selection of positions is very important. The warehousing of positions is important, and meddling is bad. Too much meddling is bad because it flies in the face of what you're trying to produce. You can turn a con- highly convex position into a linear one by overtrading it. We we try to focus everything. Well,
0: we try to as best we can ignore the underlying market. We don't have market views. We don't care. In a sense, we don't want to care what the underlying market is, except for the reflexivity of the vol suppression by the biggest dominant agent. The central bank tends to be what drives the vol supply and the buildup of leverage. But we want to just think specifically about the value of volatility, and the asymmetry, the F of X, the payout functions that we're creating, and not think about X, not think about forecasting or probabilistic measuring of potential outcomes. We're fo- trying to focus as best as we can on the efficiency of payout functions. The heuristics is not the we talk about.
2: Yeah. Two final questions. Uh, the first one is sizing your allocation to a, to a long vol strategy. I think you've made some points about how you really don't need to be that fussy about the exact amount you put in, possibly using some of the indices as a proxy. Can, can you say something about that yeah, you know, uh,
0: again, I, I talk all the time, and this is really a Nassim Taleb. Not coincidentally, Nassim and I were both at Bankers Trust early in our career. So we got the same brainwashing back before Glass Steagall went away, and you actually managed capital in a banking business. The, you know, X versus F of X, right? And so if you've got the right F of X, if your payout function of your portfolio is convex, then more risk is less risk. And so when you start playing this game, so as a simple example, we run all the time for people, take your 60-40 model, take the amount of capital allocated to the 40 in fixed income, split that 50-50 between long vol and more equity. So you're now 80-20, 80 equities, 20 long vol. And that looks better than 60-40, less risk, more return. And then because of the, capital efficiency of the way people run long vol strategies everybody's able to run that at 2x leverage through a 2x leverage sleeve of some form or run it off balance sheet with full leverage the way mark spitznagel does um so two times lever that now you're 80 40 and you make more return and have less risk and so well then add more risk then turn your 80 or some of your 80 into nasdaq instead of s p so you get more upside convexity well, it turns out now you have more return and less risk. Well, then do it again and do it again and do it again. So once you start building the convexity in, uh, you know, the sky's the limit. You, you know, to the extent that you have access to it, you can just keep going because every time you add efficient convexity, you can take more risk and, and then you have more returns and more risk and you're paying for the cost of the long vol through the performance of the convexity of the additional risk and the upside. And so that's again, back to, you know, have good brakes and drive faster in the good parts. That's how you pay for long vol. You don't pay for long vol by doing a collar, right? Doing a collar is giving away the upside to protect the downside. That's not risk management mitigation. That's, again, just driving slower, right? What you want is access to more of the convexity the upside because you've cut off the downside. And, and and you can keep playing this game and playing this game. So we run all kinds of examples and various things and we make joking names about them. I think you've probably seen my always good weather portfolio that yeah. we might compare to risk parity examples, et cetera, which is a, you know 40% NASDAQ, 40% S&P and 40% long vol. And that just comes from this, our example of the, the long-term S&P where you take out the two percentile worst months and the two percentile best months. And it just so happens that the Contribution to long term compounded returns over that 500 month time series, those 10 worst months contribute minus 40% of the returns, and the 10 best months contribute plus 30% of the returns, right? The 480 middle months only contribute 30% of the returns. So we say, well, that's for the top months, let's allocate to NASDAQ, and for the bad months, let's allocate to Long Vol. And sure enough, you get something that's far more risk efficient from a downside vol or drawdown perspective and has much
2: better compounded returns through time. Let me ask you a cheeky question then from a business standpoint. Given all of these arguments, which I strongly agree with, why don't you run an equitized version of your strategy? What, where we run the- Where you actually just buy and roll the S&P.
0: Yeah, we get asked that a lot. But my my point generally is a, a big part of the value of having more strikers on the pitch of having more exposure to the upside beta is that it's free so I don't even want people to pay me to do it because if if I do it I still have to roll in costs for administrators and accountants and fund setups and lawyers and uh, all that stuff or however we do it it's much better if you just run it on your own lines or on your own balance I, sheet I because, think that's the honest just way to all do all the it. upside give yeah. all the upside yourself right you don't want to pay anybody I, you know, we get asked all the time, well, you know, will you go and do the swap for us with one of your bank counterparties? Why, why do you want to pay a, I won't, I won't badmouth anybody. Why do you want to pay a, a major global investment bank, 35 basis points? Something you can get for free, right? You, you have futures lines, you have ETF access, or you have the swap access without creating something where we have to construct an administrator governance or whatever. It's free. You know, you can do it on your phone. Why do you want to pay somebody for it? And and most of the guys, you know, most of the guys that we deal with, are able of adding the two numbers together. Right? They, they don't need somebody to tell them, you know, to somehow, you know, well, this this year, this cost <laughs> this much, and this made this much. Great, right? You know, I, I not to pick on Nassim, but I, I do recall not too long ago, uh, sort of a Twitter argument between Nassim and some people who were advocating that uh, less efficient forms of risk mitigation were better for investors because they didn't come with a, a line negative number. And I think I'll see exception <laughs> to that, saying that I, I, don't sure know, I don't know who you think your investors are and why they can't add two numbers
2: together, but my people I talk to are able to do that. Yeah, optics are a strange thing. I'm, people often do look at the line items, and uh, it's good that the industry has evolved at least somewhat. I do find it frustrating how slow the industry evolves sometimes, but um, that is good. I think that's about all I had. I'd like to give you a chance to just say whatever you want to. Or uh... no, it's, uh, you know, it's great. It's fantastic to talk to you. Uh, you
0: know, I, I love being in touch with you know people like yourself and and Chris Cole and Jerry and Mike Green. I, you know, we all know each other, and we all used to get together in conferences now again when we travel i'm sort of the lone guy sitting out here in asia and the lone guy really doing you know a bunch of stuff that a lot of other people aren't looking at and and uh, so it's always fun to get to talk to people who are you know in the in the middle of the sort of the the center of it with vix and s&p expertise and stuff we we tend to look at that and say well geez there's not so much of a supply and demand imbalance there. We'll go look someplace else and leave that to the experts who are a little more uh, sharp than we are at that stuff. But well, it's always it, great to catch up with you guys.
2: Yeah. Uh, as a final comment, it is challenging sometimes if you just focus on the one place where everyone goes to hedge. Um, so maybe you do have some, uh, certainly you have a very strong edge in that regard. So. wait well, yeah. It's supply and demand, right? It's,
0: you know, obviously, when we're speaking to potential clients and stuff, many of them, large institutions that may have gotten to or get to a, a decision to allocate the hedging strategies and almost without fail, that hedging strategy revolves around VIX. And, yep. and yet so much of the vol supply that we're very familiar with and see, none of it's in VIX, right? It's in everything but. And then of course you get the dynamics and you're the expert on this, you know, where the you know, the natural hedger wants long-dated vol and the, the natural seller wants short-dated vol. Everybody wants to manage the vega-theta relationship. You want, uh, as, a, as, a, as a short vol guy, you want uh, fast-theta limited vega exposure. As a hedger, you want slow-theta, lots of vega exposure. So you want longer-dated. And so, in the, you know, the way we see the U.S., uh, where you have lots of hedgers, and the speculators will tend to bunch in the front end you have a very steep term structure which then makes incredibly the vix, steep. The VIX future term structure just unbearable as a hedging strategy uh, versus you know other markets we look particularly in equity space that are more driven by this structure product ball supply auto callables and stuff coming out of korea and places like that where the structures embed shortfall selling and maybe more particularly skew selling long out the term structure and because of the nature of the domestic equity markets the demand for vol is generally driven by short-term speculators directional traders hedge funds and speculators in the front end of the volatility markets and so you end up very often with inverted term structures out here yeah i mean that from a hedging perspective makes life a little bit easier for guys like us
2: yeah the vega theta dynamic is unplayable in the s p so uh yeah absolutely And with that, I will hand it back to Niels.
1: Thank you so much, Harry and Dave, for a great conversation. I really enjoyed hearing your views on the concept of participate and protect, and of course the importance of understanding why compounding is the ultimate goal if you want to really grow your capital base. And of course, the always good weather portfolio is something that Also, trend followers would love to see more investors embrace. Make sure you go and follow Dave's and Harry's work because, as you can tell from today's conversation, there are many exciting facets to proper portfolio construction and we really look forward to exploring many of them as our series continue. From Harry and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other.